guys can have a seat. Good morning. Welcome to Grace City. Merry Christmas. And uh, if I had a chance to meet yet, my name is David. I'm the teaching pastor here. And uh, thank you so much for being here and being part of our community. I just want to speak to it because it's awkward to me looking at you right now. Apparently nobody, li- well, y'all like the middle section, but this dead middle, it's like, or it's like a great chasm in our church today. So, but that's typically filled up by our college students. So, you know, our college students are going back home and lots of folks out traveling and, uh, and beginning their Christmas holidays earlier. So uh, I'm going to be like talking to you guys in the back, back there, and then I'll just kind of be all over the place this morning. So is that fair? Is that good? Cool. What's going to happen if it's not? So, uh, so hey, look, so the past weeks, as, as, as Stevie's just walked us through, we've been in our Advent series and we've reflected on the different aspects of Christ's ministry to us, how he's brought hope and joy and peace and, and today and hope and joy and love. And today we lit the candle that, that draws our attention to the peace that Christ has brought into this world. We rightly celebrate how he made a way uh, for us as individuals to have peace with God. You, you heard it in the video of, about the, the ministry that Christ has had. And, and without him in that role of Prince of Peace, making a way for our sins to be forgiven, for us to have right standing before God, without him in that role, I'm lost. We are lost, right? He is the only one through whom we can have forgiveness of sins and peace with God. We make much of that hope week in, week out at Grace City. But the tension that I feel so often is when you look at this world, it's anything but peace, right? Like, I mean, there, there's conflict on a global scale between zealous ideologies. There's conflict on a personal level between neighbors, maybe with, within your own family, between family members and between loved ones. And so there's just conflict and brokenness and struggle and strife all over, basically everywhere you look at it. And then you're like, David, this is not very uplifting or hopeful for Christmas. But we just, we see that brokenness, right? We see that conflict. And, and there are so many times where like, we know that conflict is there because of someone else's uh, bad decisions, someone else's mistakes, someone else's sin. But if we're honest, we can also say of ourselves that, that there's also conflict in this world, conflict with those in our family, because maybe we've been the ones to act out of pride, to act out of greed. Maybe we didn't act out of apathy or indifference. And so if we're honest, maybe we could also say some of the conflict is there because of our sin. We've been the ones to break the peace. And as much as we wish we could, we we can't ignore the brokenness that's in the world, right? And we can't blindly hope that it will go away. And, and, And I think... Maybe this, is, maybe this is one of the reasons why you're unsure about Jesus. Can I just say it that way? Maybe it, it, you, this is one of the reasons you're unsure about Jesus, because if he's the prince of peace, why is there still so much conflict in this world? Why, why is there still so much brokenness? If he ushered in this peace with his birth, and we talk about him being the prince of peace, maybe like the, that brings some questions for you about him. Maybe it brings questions about just Christian, the Christian faith as a whole. Like, is it a faith? that's just some sort of escapist theology that's like, okay, it's, it's just there for us when we die? Or what does our faith say about the now? What does our faith say about the, about the brokenness? What does it say about having hope in the face of that brokenness? And does it say anything about our responsibility to engage it? And I think that's one of the lessons of Christmas that we can learn if we lean into it, that, that maybe it's seeing how the peace Christ desires to bring into our present circumstances and even how he wants to bring that peace is something that continues to foster this ultimate hope that we have, that one day there will be a day where there's no more conflict, no more brokenness, truly a peace that passes all understanding. Because you see, we do believe this radical truth about Christmas and this radical hope is that Christ was born the Prince of Peace, 
And we do believe that despite all the brokenness that we see. And we believe that Jesus brought peace into this world with his first advent, with his first arrival, with his first coming. And we also believe that he will bring it ultimately with his second advent, with his second arrival, with his second coming. That truly one day there will be no more tears, no more distress, no more gloom, no more heartache when Christ returns and reveals the fullness of his kingdom. In the book of Isaiah, you have the prophet Isaiah writing to a group of God's people who are experiencing anything but peace. In fact, they are being invaded by a foreign army. They're experiencing violence and just brokenness on on a global scale. But remember, God is writing to his Israelites, a people that he had promised that if they live by his word, if they live by his promise, uh, that they would be able to enjoy the promised land. They would be able to remain in the land if if they lived by his word, if they honored him. Uh, however, God also promised them if they, uh, if they turn their back on him, if they worship false gods, if they take advantage of other people in their life that God has placed there for them to bless, that God would discipline them. And if they stayed in that uh, resistance, if they, stayed, if they stayed persisting in their sin, that God would even allow them to be driven from the land. Or in the context of Isaiah, that's what's happening for the Israelites. They've broken their peace in their relationship with the Lord. They've broken the peace in their relationship with, fellow, with their fellow man. And, and as a result, we see the Assyrian army is coming to attack them and really to try to conquer uh, the entire uh, Holy Land, the entire promised land. And in the, in, the, in the historical context of Isaiah, the Israelite nation is split into two kingdoms. There's the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. They're all Jewish. They're all part of the Israelite people. But in this time period in history, they're split. Northern kingdom, southern kingdom. And in the northern kingdom, they're being led by this corrupt king named Ahaz. Uh, he was failing the people at every turn, even worshiping false gods, basically inviting the Lord's discipline on their behalf. So much so that the people were, were, were praying, hoping that a new king would be born. A new king would come. A righteous king that would help turn all of Israel, northern and southern kingdom, all of Israel back to God to right their wrong and to establish peace for their people. So in the book of Isaiah, specifically Isaiah chapter 9, Isaiah gives a message from the Lord to God's people that was to give them hope in the midst of their suffering. It was to give them hope in the midst of the brokenness. It was to give them hope in the midst of the conflict and the violence that they were seeing at every turn. And it's a message that is given that that parts of it will be fulfilled in the short term, when the Assyrian army is driven out, when they're delivered from from their conquest. But much of the words, the prophetic words that Isaiah gives to the Israelites were words that looked forward to the coming of Christ. As a result, this passage of Isaiah chapter 9 has one of the most quoted and one of the most noteworthy prophecies about the coming birth of Jesus. And I want us to see it. Go to Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 through 7. This is going to be our primary text. I've kind of already given you the context. I've already given you the setup. So we're just going to jump in the scripture. Isaiah chapter 9 verse 1 through 3. Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who are in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, but in the future, he will honor Galilee of the nations by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as warriors rejoice when dividing the plunder. We'll stop there because you can start to hear um, how it would be good news for those that are in suffering, but it's also kind of pointing us towards Christ. For, for starters, the, the first line, no more gloom, right? 
No more gloom. No more gloom for those in distress. No more pain. No more heartache for, for those that are in this war-ravaged region. So this would automatically kind of get their ears perked up like, man, there, there's going to be a day of, of complete and total peace. And, and Isaiah begins this, this portion of his, of, his, of his address with this. Now there's two, two, ter- two words in here that maybe aren't very familiar to us, and I'm going to spend time on it because I want to. <laughs> uh, it says, in the past he humbled the land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali. Uh, if you don't know, these, are, these two names are two of the 12 tribes of Israel. So when the Israelites are in the promised land, uh, there's, there's 12 tribes that make up the Israelite nation, and they're given land allotments within the promised land. Zebulun and Naphtali, the land that they, were, that they held, or the land that was given to these two tribes, was kind of on the border of the region. So like there's in the dead middle, and these, these two groups are, are on the edges. So what happens is, is these two groups, these two people, these two land allotments, these two tribe, tribal lands, are base, basically become the doormats of any foreign army that's coming to invade the land. They're the first to get hit every single time. That's why in this verse it says in the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and Naphtali. They're like, if an army's coming, it's like knock, knock on the door, and they're going to hit Zebulun and Naphtali. It's just... It's, Bad luck of the draw, I guess. But, but so like, they've been humbled, right? They, so if there's anybody that knows conflict, they're the first to receive it. But now Isaiah is saying, no, 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 you're going to be the first to see the rescue. You're going to be the, the first to see the hope. You're going to be the first to see the deliverance. And that prophecy comes true because Jesus' hometown of Nazareth in these lands. Where Jesus begins his ministry in Galilee, Capernaum, in these lands as well. They're the first to see the coming rescue. They're the first to see the Christ. They're the first to see his ministry that he has. And it's happening in these lands that have been war ravaged for so long. Once more, uh, one other bit of Zebulun and Naphtali. uh, With these lands occupying the Galilee region. This was a region that was, in the time of Christ, very despised and looked down on. Uh, people considered them like uneducated backwoods, country bumpkins, like well, what good can come out of Galilee? And, and so they were, they were oftentimes uh, uh, made fun of, just uh, condescended to, is that even a phrase? <laughs> Looked down on in that way. And so they, they, that's, that's, how they, that's how people thought of the Galilee. And it was twofold, not only because they were considered uneducated, but also um, since it was a borderland, there were people living in this region that weren't Jewish. There were outsiders living in the land, and so there was Gentiles here. And so it was a, a, a place that was considered not fully Jewish, kind of mixed with these outsiders. And so, uh, but we also see how that turns to a source of blessing for them, because it says, you have enlarged their nation and increased their joy. When Christ is ministering in this region, he's preaching the hope and the ministry and the message of the gospel. And not only are Jewish people responding to it, but so, are, so is the Gentile. And you see the nation of God, those God's people beginning to enlarge, beginning to expand here in this region that has been known conflict for so long. And so as this is happening, as, as, as this will happen, uh, as people respond to the hope and the deliverance that God is bringing on their behalf, Isaiah in chapter 9 begins to write about the joy that it's going to bring, uh, the hope that it's going to bring. And he has these poetic ways of describing it, right? It's a hope that people feel after harvest, after all the work's been done. It's a hope that a nation feels after victory, no more gloom, no more heartache, but victory and peace. Again, you can already feel Isaiah looking forward to the, the perfect peace of the Christ. A perfect peace that the light or that Christ will bring. And in verses 4 and 5, he's going to turn his words back towards the Lord. Uh, For as in the days of Midian's defeat, 
You have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor. Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. So now Isaiah, he's not talking to the people anymore. He's talking to the Lord and he's saying, look, this peace that is coming for our people is something that only the Lord is going to do. The Lord is going to be the one that brings about this. He references this in the days of Midian's defeat. There was this story in Israelites' history where uh, this uh, leader, Gideon, led the Israelites against the people of Midian. And there was this huge underdog situation. The only way it was going to happen is if God worked, and he did, and the Israelites were victorious. He's just calling them back to that story. God's done this for us before. God's going to do it for us again. He's going to be the one that breaks the yoke, that, that, that frees uh, us from this oppression. But if you notice, he breaks it so fully that, both, that, that it's liberating for both the oppressor and the oppressed. Uh, the oppressor who doesn't even know he's enslaved to that sin. It's just complete and total liberation because uh, you see the description, right? Every warrior's boot, every garment destined for fuel in the fire. These instruments of war, these instruments of conflict no longer needed uh, can be burned up and, and thrown away. He's giving this picture of complete and total peace, complete and total deliverance from all violence and all evil. And if I've lost you in the past five or ten minutes, hang with me, all right? Stick with me. We're going to see where he's going with this. Verse, uh, verse 6. How is this total peace going to be accomplished? How is this complete uh, victory going to happen? Verse 6. For to us a child is born. To us a son is given. And the government will be on his shoulders. And he'll be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his gover government and peace there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The, the zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. How is this peace going to happen? How is this victory going to be uh, attained? A child is born, a son is given. You know, that's a, a verse that we definitely hear in, in a Christmas story, right? Because it's, it's referenced during, uh, I think in the, in the Luke account. Uh, during the, the birth of Christ. But in that one sentence, I just want to draw your attention to it because I, th I think it's cool. You see both natures of Christ. A child is born. He's fully human. He is fully man. A son is given. God's son given to us. He's fully divine as well. Both natures in this one verse describing the person, the ministry, the divinity of Christ. He's fully human, fully divine. As such, he's the only one who can serve as the righteous king of kings. The righteous king, king of kings. He will be the one to have complete and total authority as that king of kings. They've seen the corrupt Ahaz at every turn. They've seen him fail. They've seen him worship false gods and invite this conflict they were experiencing. Isaiah saying, hey, look, there's going to be one to come who's going to be perfect in every way. There's going to be one to come who's going to be the, 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 the wonderful counselor. His way is full of wisdom. His way is full of truth. He's going to be the mighty God. He's almighty. He's all-powerful. He is God in the flesh. He's everlasting father. Uh, the Israelites, they would describe their kings as fatherly and their love and concern for their people. And Isaiah is saying, look, as king of kings, no one is going to dethrone him. But, and he will have this love and concern for his people for all times. He is the prince of peace. He's going to be the one to bring the peace and reconciliation that Isaiah is foretelling. He will reign forever. No challenges to his throne. No corruption in his kingdom. It is full of justice and righteousness for all eternity. It's what God has promised to do for his people. It's the type of peace that will come with the prince of peace as he establishes the reign of the kingdom of God. That's the peace of the Messiah. It's the peace of the Christ. It's the peace of the Savior. It is the peace that Jesus is to bring.
why isn't it here? All of that to come back to the same question. Why is that peace not here? Because, I, I, again, if, if, if Jesus is the prince of the peace, then, then, like, where's that type of kingdom that Isaiah has described? Like, where's that type of, of, of just expression of the kingdom of, of God? Like, this, that, this is one of, if not the primary reason many Jewish people reject Jesus as the Messiah, because they don't see this type of, of kingdom. And I get it, right? Like, I get that pushback. I, I, get, I get that tension. I mean, I, I've said that at the beginning. But when you look at, at the ministry and listen to the message of Jesus, I, 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 do, I think he helps us with this. I think he explains why we don't see it the way that we expect to see it. In fact, when he is uh, in, in his trial before his crucifixion, when he's talking with Pilate, he tells, uh, he tells the, the Roman official straight up, my kingdom is not of this world. All right, so let, that should be a trigger for all of us to think, okay, that means it's, it's, it's not what we would expect. It's not going to be a typical, a typical expression of kingdoms the way that, that man would e- e- expect to see. And so we, we see him say, hey, my kingdom is not of this world. It's going to function. It's going to look. It's going to operate differently than what you think it's going, than how you think it's going to, than what you would expect. And so really throughout much of his ministry, Jesus describes how his kingdom is going to work. He describes how it's going to function. And one of the one of the primary attributes or one of the principal uh, attributes of the kingdom of God is that Jesus describes it as both currently here now and also a future reality. It's something that's already present with us, but it's also coming into existence. And that just like, like, that just like blows my mind, even like how could that function? But Jesus gives a metaphor that's incredibly helpful. He says the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed that starts off smallest of seeds in the garden, but when it's planted, it grows to become the largest of trees, the largest of plants in the garden. And so it's here already in seed form, but it's coming in all of its fullness. It's already here, but it's coming into existence. So Jesus is letting know it's, it's a once already here, once and future kingdom. It's here because Jesus has been born with his first advent. He's here because he's ushered in God's kingdom. It's also coming in all of its fullness with his second advent. It's how the kingdom of God functions, and it is how the peace that comes with experiencing the reign of the kingdom of God will function as well. It's here, and it is coming. Uh, tracking with me on this, I, I, I'll get some confused looks, but we're, we're, seeing him t- we're seeing Christ talk about how he's reigning as king of kings over his kingdom that is both here now and coming in all of its fullness. Another attribute of the kingdom of God that he describes about, uh, that he describes about his kingdom is he says his kingdom is within and among his people. In Luke chapter 17, verse 20 and 21, he's in this, Jesus is in a little bit of an, an argument with some of the uh, religious leaders of the day. Uh, some of the, 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 these, these Jewish religious leaders, they're looking, asking, really longing for the kingdom of God. Because remember the time of Jesus, they're suffering under Rome. Like they see that oppression, they're like, hey, we want to be done with this. When is God's kingdom coming? And, but yet Jesus replies to them, and he's like, look, my, my kingdom is not something that can be observed. It's like here it is or there it is. But rather he teaches them that the kingdom of God is within and among God's people. And so, again, we should hear that and know, okay, the kingdom of God is not limited to boundaries with walls and barriers. But no, it's something that reigns within the hearts of God's people. 
So what happens when people respond to the gospel, when they respond to the truth that we saw in the video, we respond to the truth of, of who Christ is and what he's done, and their lives are transformed by Christ, and they're part of God's kingdom. And then they begin to live out the teaching of God's word. They begin to express the virtues, the values, the ethics of God's kingdom. What you're seeing is the kingdom of God reigning in that person's life, and you're seeing the kingdom of God expressed through their actions. Another place in scripture where we see this, uh, an example of this, is in the book of Romans. Uh, the church is um, in a time of conflict. There's, there, there's a time of brokenness within the church. There's some arguing over uh, like what to eat or what's permissible to eat or drink. And the Apostle Paul is, is writing to them to help them uh, just kind of reorient their thinking a, a little bit. And to that situation, Paul responds with Romans 14, 17 through 19. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Because anyone who serves Christ in this way is pleasing to God and receives human approval. Let us therefore make every effort to do what leads to peace and to mutual edification. So Paul's like, look, you're focused on this. I'm calling you to, to be people that express the peace of the kingdom of God. To be people that express the righteousness and the joy of the Holy Spirit. Because when, when that's our aim, when that's our effort, when that's how we're serving one another, when that's what we're trying to bring into this world, we're serving Christ in a way that is pleasing to him. We're also serving our fellow man in a way that meets with their approval as well. And don't hear that in a sense of, of we've got to be people pleasers, but Paul's like, look, let's remember, we're called to bless. We're called to bless others. So when we serve others with joy and with peace, uh, th then, then we're blessing our neighbors. We're not adding to the brokenness in this world, but we're agents of reconciliation. And what's happening is we're expressing the peace of the kingdom of God. Jesus, uh, 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 again, um, calls in, in, in his Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 9, he says, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. So again, what happens, and I know I'm saying it over and over again, but I'm, I'm, I'm trying to help connect the dots. I'm trying to put all these building blocks in place. When we respond to the gospel... When we respond to the truth of who God is, that he is who Christ is, that he is Emmanuel, God with us. He forgives, forgives us of our sin. He reconciles us to God and he brings us peace. As, we've been, as his kindness was given to us and that led us to repent of our sin, led us to confess of those places where maybe we broke the peace in our relationships with him and with others. And that, that leads us to confess of that. We rest in his grace. We rest in the mercy that he's given. We rest in the forgiveness that he's given. And now we express that in our relationships with others. Those who've wronged us, those who've hurt us, we give grace, we give kindness, we give mercy in hopes of leading them to repentance and reconciliation as well. And so in doing so, we're, we're, we're trying to, uh, in doing so, that's a way that we partner with Christ, the Prince of Peace, as he not only reigns within our own heart, not only reigns within our own actions, but he's also, uh, we partner with him in the work that he's doing to expand the kingdom of God one heart at a time. Tracking with me on this. Like this is, again, I keep saying it four or five different ways um, because it took probably 20 different ways of be, this being said to me to where I could finally be like, okay, this is, this is how this goes together. These are how the pieces of my faith come together and this is how I find my role in it. Uh, because once this, once this doctrine took root in my heart and my soul, it was like, I mean, it just, it helped my faith take another step. And that's not to say that I'm perfect or anything, like, not by any stretch, but it's like, okay, this is, this is the play that's being run. 
And because the, the, the doctrine that we're talking about this morning is it's not just the peace of Christ, but really the root doctrine that we're talking about is seeing Christ as king. Christ as king of kings and reigning over the kingdom of God. Because when that takes, like, when I, when I see that and understand Christ as king of kings, reigning over the kingdom of God, and I'll hold on to how the kingdom of God functions, here in mustard seed form, coming in all of its fullness. When I hear that, that, that helps me. As that takes root deeper in my soul, that helps me understand. So, so when I see brokenness in this world, when I see tragedy, when I see violence, when I see stuff that's just, that, that's just heartbreaking, when I see that in this world, while it's sad and tragic, it's not cause for despair. It's not cause for abandoning the faith. Rather, it is a call to action. It is a call to, to action because those are all the places where the peace of the kingdom of God is yet to reign. And so what it is then, it's fertile soil for seeds of the kingdom to be planted so that it would then yield a harvest of peace and reconciliation. And, 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 and like that's, that helps me. And this is, this is a, a, a truth that I've said before, a principle of our faith that I've said before on Sunday mornings. Um, and and if I, it's something that will be in every funeral that I preach because this is, uh, to me, one of the most hope-filled aspects of our faith, especially in those situations where we're grieving. Especially in those situations where it's like, man, this is anything but like peace, right? Uh, to me, this is one of the most hope-filled aspects of our faith, is, is that with our faith, we cannot lose sight of the fact that our faith is a faith of protest. Our faith is a faith of protest. It sees brokenness and heartache and suffering and evil and says, no, this is not, a, a, this is not, this should not be, and this is not as it will one day be, because our, our hope is anchored to the first advent of Christ. The coming of the kingdom that he made a way for us to confess our sin, to have peace with God, and to cultivate a peace with our fellow man. So our hope is anchored to the first advent. It's oriented to the second. It's oriented to the second of his second arrival. Because at that occurrence, the prophetic words of Isaiah will be completely satisfied. No more gloom for those who are in despair. No more anguish for those who are hurting. No more gloom. No more heartache for those who are in distress. So our hope anchored to Christ in his first advent, oriented to his second, because that's where we will see the Prince of Peace return to usher in the fullness of God's kingdom that in, in which he will establish and uphold his justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. Our hope is anchored to the first, oriented towards the second. And so what that does then Keep tracking with me on this. Stick with me. We have hope and confidence in his return, that he will do that ultimate work, that he will finish it completely. So we have that. But until then, we cannot abandon the role that he has left for his people because our faith is not an escapist theology. It's meant for the here and now. It's meant for both. Right? So, again, we can see the brokenness and see the heartache and, see the, and get overwhelmed with the brokenness and our call to engage it, and maybe despair at what seems like an insurmountable task. What good would we be doing if we engage this? But no, we come back and remember, it's on the clock. It's going away. He's going to come back, and there's going to be no more pain, no more suffering, no more tragedy. So we know that truth is coming because our faith is oriented towards his return, right? So we know that, we know that uh, it's not an insurmountable task. It will be defeated. Uh, but we, uh, so we know that Christ is coming back, but we are not... Uh, free to abandon the work. A, a statement that I, that I came across that helps with this is um, we are not called to complete the work, nor are we free to abandon it. Christ will do that. 
That's a work that he's going to do. We are not called to complete the work, but we cannot abandon it either. It is a work that is hard. It is a work that is long. It is a work that God created in advance for us to do, but it is the work of peacemaking that gives to the soul joy and shows that our faith is not only bound to Christ for all eternity, but our faith is bound to Christ for the here and now and the work that he is doing among the broken. And so the, the, the question that I have for you is just imagine, imagine how different Christmas season would be for you, for me, for our church. Imagine how different our Christmas season would be even for our communities if we not only celebrate the birth of the Prince of Peace, but we embrace the call that he's given to his family to be a family of peacemakers in this world. How different would Christmas be if, if we not only herald the message of, of, of our hope in Christ, that, that he is the one through whom we have forgiveness of sin and salvation for the soul. Like how different would Christmas be really if we, like we could say that sentence, that we help all realize that he's made a way for us to come out of judgment, out of shame, out of our brokenness and experience the wholeness of his gospel. How different would our Christmas be if we embrace that role of peacemaking around the Christmas season, but also how different would, would our Christmas season look, or what, how different would it look if we as peacemakers look to confess, uh, repent of, and even help eradicate some of the sins of our communities that unjustly keep our neighbors marginalized and overlooked? How different would our Christmas season look if we as peacemakers looked for ways to enter into the situation of those suffering, abuse, and hardship to find ways to help lift up and to help restore? How much hope would that bring? How much would that demonstrate the kingdom of God pushing back against the darkness of this world? That would be a way where we see again and again and again the light of Christ shining into the darkness. That would be the kingdom of God reigning in the hearts of his people, expressed in the world today and expressed through their actions. It would be good news and great joy for all the world. For us, a, son, a child is born, a son is given. He is wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace whose kingdom is reigning in the hearts of his people, being expressed through their actions as, as his people join with him in the work that he's doing, expelling the darkness. Like That's why we celebrate the Prince of Peace. I pray you know it. I pray you trust in him and experience the peace that God desires to bring into your heart, bring into your soul. And I pray that you know how he calls, equips, and enables his people to be peacemakers, to demonstrate the once and future peace of the coming kingdom.